Rap on BFBS with Kate Chabot. Is Iraq heading towards another civil war? 60 years on from the end of the Korean War, we look at the enormous contrast between the North and South. Korea makes a start on the road back to national independence. All Japs, soldiers and civilians alike, have got the order to clear out. And what's in a name? Could a Janet or a John lead an army into battle? One hundred and seventy-nine British service personnel lost their lives ousting Saddam Hussein. The aim of Optelic was, of course, to make Iraq and the world more stable and secure. But is Iraq now facing a return to civil war? Looking at the number of people who've been killed in the past few months, many think it is more than three thousand have died since April this year. Almost all of them in bomb attacks. Most of the bombs planted by Sunni extremists who say they have been treated shabbily by a government dominated by Shias. Sunnis accused the Shiite-led government of marginalising and targeting their people by making unwarranted arrests and terrorism charges. The BBC's Jim Muir explains why he thinks the situation in Iraq is deteriorating. I think partly it's because of what's happening in Syria. The whole region is now, the, the, the whole basis for the regional states is, is being pushed into question by the disintegration uh, of Syria. That's having a big effect on Iraq. The Sunni areas of Iraq are adjacent to Syria. There's a lot of interaction uh, going on there. Um, Shiite, the Shiite government is feeling very paranoid about that. It sees the emergence of a kind of big Sunni bloc as a possibility. It uh, feels the need to, to lean more heavily on its fellow Shiite across the border uh, in Iran. So as well as having this kind of uh, upsurge of what you might call insurgent activity, a bombing campaign that is very reminiscent of what went on in 2005-2006 until uh, the Shiites finally responded after the attack on the mosque at uh, Samarra and you had what looked very perilously close to a civil war. Uh, In addition to that, uh, you also have this uh, threat of disintegration. That was the BBC's Jim Muir. Well, our defence analyst, Christopher Lee, is with me as always. And also joining us is the Daily Telegraph's defence editor and author, Con Cartland. Con, good to speak to you. you good know, to be with you. You know Iraq extremely well. Do you agree the country is close to civil war? Well, I have a lot of sympathy with what uh, Jim Muir was just saying in, in that uh, segment. Um, the problem is we, we, we have a democratic system in Iraq uh, but the government of Nouri al-Maliki, the Shia, is basically, um, as Jim Muir said, tending to represent the interests of the Shias against the Sunnis. And when the Americans left two or three years ago, um, what they were trying to do was persuade the Maliki government to enter into negotiations with the Sunnis and the Kurds to try and refashion the political landscape of Iraq, so that uh, all the various um, s- segments of the population were, were represented in the government. Um, and Al Nouri has not done this. Um, he's tended to play footsie with Iran. A lot of uh, Sunni ministers have been uh, booted out of the government. 
And so the Sunnis feel that they've got no option but to resort to violence again. So uh, certainly the fault lines of the bitter violence we saw in 2006, 2007 uh, in Iraq, those fault lines are being uh, uh, aggravated again. And yes, it could. this could spiral out of control. And why do you think he's not done what was wanted? Was it intention or losing control? Well, as I said, he is he is quite close to the Iranians. Um, and there is also this very, some would say, justifiable sense of grievance uh, amongst the Shias that really, since the creation of Iraq by the British in the 1920s, it's the Sunnis that have dominated the political landscape. Uh, Saddam Hussein, of course, was a Sunni Muslim from Tikrit. Uh, and most of his predecessors... Uh, were Sunnis, the royal family was Sunni uh, during the monarchy uh, and, the, and, the, and the Shias were very much put in their place in fact when the British were there in the 1920s the, the early RAF used to, to, uh, to, to bomb the Shias to, 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 to keep them under control so you know, they, there's, a, there's a long history of grievance among the Shias and I think Mr Maliki is somewhat informed by that Christopher Lee, what should Mr Maliki be doing? Mr Maliki hasn't got very many options. That's the first thing to remember. He will not get rid, and as Con has, and, and Jamir has sort of suggested, he will not get rid of this Sunni-Shia differences. And it's not just a political difference. It goes much deeper than that. It is not simply an Iraqi problem. For example, if there were to be an uprising in, in Saudi Arabia, it would be a Shia... Sunni uprising. It is an up uprising which has been yelling to to come since I don't know Abdulaziz Ibn Saud sort of threw his spear into the door in, in Medina whenever that was. I mean, 1901. It's that deeply embedded. And if you understand that he doesn't have those many options, it is questioned. Therefore, that you go back into the concept of civil war. And when you see the, the depth of the violence then you understand that that is so possible. And also note one other thing. The Americans are putting more troops back into Iraq. Now, ostensibly, that is something to cope with what's going on in Syria. But you can't put that sort of divisional strength back into Iraq. How many are they putting in? At the moment, it's only on, two, I think it's two, two and a half divisions uh, in. But there will be more in there, much more in there. And they've never, never believed that they were going to have to go back in their strengths. But it was the, it was the, the, the concept that mm. war could spread throughout the Levant, could spread the Middle East. And that is what they didn't understand right at the beginning. Uh, on that, those decisions to put troops into Iraq, the uh, Chilcot inquiry was set up four years ago. It seems to be progressing very slowly. In fact, most people forget it hasn't reported yet, Con. Um, what do you think the impact will be and when is the report expected? Well, I saw one of the uh, members of the, uh, the, the inquiry team fairly recently and uh, basically they're still having lots of arguments with Downing Street over which documents can be made public. Um, and there is also a determination on the part of the committee members to try and have a balanced report because... Um, yeah, the Iraq the Iraq issues become very toxic in British politics, um, and lots of people think it was a terrible mistake to invade in the first place. In fact, most people have already made their minds up to that effect. But the actual the actual story is a lot more complicated. So, I think the the report will probably limp out <laughs> towards <laughs> the end of the year or early next. But uh, as I say, there's a lot of wrangling still going on.
Hey, this is, this is going to be a blame game, isn't it, Con? It uh, is, precisely. Uh, yeah, and that's what the, uh, Chilcott didn't want. I'll give you one very powerful example. The then director of MI6, Richard Dearlove, who is now loitering in a Cambridge college, <laughs> he is determined that he's not going to have the clag poured over him, as the way he put it the other night. And he is quite willing, before Chilcott actually uh, is published, he's quite willing to start going public with what he believes is the, is the right thing, the way he should be treated, and the blame of the other people. If he does that, watch for the successor at MI6, uh, John Scarlett, same thing's going to happen uh, Happen there. The blame game is at the most sensitive and the highest part of, of, of the whole Whitehall apparatus. So, Con, if you were a betting man, is it going to limp out or is it going to be explosive, this? Well, I, I think there will be so many caveats. I mean, what, what, you know, what, what, what a number of people want is Tony Blair's head on a plate. And I don't think you're going to get that. Uh, we've already had one inquiry into the failure of intelligence by Lord Butler, um, which actually, when, you know, for anyone who's read it, is a really damning indictment of the way the MI6 approached the build-up to the war, um, getting far too carried away with their sources and making quite ludicrous claims about the uh, veracity of their, their so-called intelligence. So we've already had that, um, and I imagine there'll be a bit more of that. Um, and the big question is, did Tony Blair lie to the British people? I suspect it will, it will conclude that, based on the evidence he was given at the time, he was in a rather difficult position um, to make a, make, a, make a judgment call. But I think it's the way we went to war that uh, is going to be uh, of concern to people because yeah, if we don't see the documents, then yeah, we will just be left with this, this notion that Tony Blair did a quiet deal with, with George Bush and, and we went to war uh, on a false premise. All right, Con Coughlin, thank you very much for your time thank today. Thank you, bye. Still to come, should politicians have the final say on deploying our armed forces overseas? And do you really have to be an Alexander the Great or a Julius Caesar to win a battle? What's wrong with being Bill or John? Or indeed George? Fighting in the Korean War came to an end 60 years ago this Saturday. The war had been a struggle between UN forces allied to the Democratic South and communist troops from the North allied to the Chinese. The Korean War claimed four million lives and lasted three years. Its legacy is seen in the divided Korea, which persists to this day. Tim Cooper describes the key points of the war. 1946, the Second World War is over and hopes are high for Korea. After 40 years of Japanese domination, Korea makes a start on the road back to national independence. All Japs, soldiers and civilians alike, have got the order to clear out. Through the capital city of Seoul goes the big trek to the docks at Busan. Yet Korea wasn't set for a peaceful future. The competing superpowers, the US and USSR, agreed to a division of the country along the 38th parallel. But the North dreamed of a totally communist Korea, the South of a unified democracy. On June the 25th, North Korea attacked across the 38th parallel. As South Korean forces moved up to stem the invasion, the world saw the challenge. Communism was on the march. And before its well-armed blow, the defenders fell back. 
U.S. troops were hurriedly sent from their bases in Japan. Under a British-American air umbrella, the Armada arrives off Pohang and the landing craft go in. It's a tense moment. The Reds are known to be only a few miles away. But they and their South Korean allies initially fared badly against the North Koreans, hastily retreating into a small area of the southeast of the country. The UN rolled into action, passing a motion which called on all members to help repel the invasion. UN Secretary General in 1950, Trivgi Lee. I consider it the clear duty of the Security Council to take steps necessary to re-establish peace in that area. 14 UN countries agreed to contribute forces, the bulk from Britain, the US and Canada, but with substantial contributions from other Commonwealth countries like Australia and New Zealand. But the North Koreans also had an ally, China. The 22nd of April 1951, 27,000 Chinese attack a defensive line held by the British 29th Infantry Brigade, numbering just 4,000 men. This will become known as the Battle of Imjin. David Reed is archivist and curator of the Soldiers of Gloucestershire Museum and explains what happened following the Chinese attack. Three Chinese divisions attacking effectively three British battalions with supporting arms plus a Belgian battalion. Eventually, Gloucester's overextended and eventually infiltrated and surrounded. Major Smith was fighting there. I was fortunate to have a reservist for a gunner. Also, there's a sergeant commander of the tank. And so they looked after us young boys. And uh, they knew that we would eventually grow up. And as we didn't know what to expect, we weren't frightened. Eventually, the Gloucesters could fight on no longer. 522 became prisoners of war, 34 of those dying in captivity. However, around 10,000 Chinese had died. This battle disrupted the Chinese advance, ultimately forcing them to abandon their spring offensive. From this point on, both sides were fighting for a truce, talking about peace while bloody battles continued. On the 27th of July, 1953, the armistice was officially signed. All three British services were involved in the Korean War. Serving with the Rimi there, Jerry Whiting recalls what the troops felt about the Korean War then and now. At that time, I don't think the average soldier could have cared less. It was over, he was going home, he was alive. Looking back, you can now see what Korea has become, how they've really got on their feet, put themselves together, and how they appreciate what the United Nations troops did in Korea, plus... They're very kind to the British Army. The men who fought in Korea are now in their 80s. They'll be remembering this week, even though for many, the Korean War is the forgotten war. Tim Cooper reporting on the 60th anniversary of the end of the Korean War. So what did the Korean War actually achieve and why is Korea still so bitterly divided with the North and South, such vastly different countries? Earlier this year, the Panorama programme gained unique undercover access to North Korea. Reporter John Sweeney spent eight days there. Well, John is currently writing a book about Korea and he joins me now along with Christopher Lee, who's still here. Hello, John. Hello, your your programme painted a very bleak picture of of North Korea. Just tell us where you want, went and what you saw briefly. Um, we spent eight days uh, in North Korea. It's the strangest, darkest tyranny I've ever been to. It's beyond strange. It feels like when you get on the, uh, the plane from Beijing to Pyongyang, you're in a time machine and you've gone back to George Orwell's 1984. We went, um, we spent most of our time in Pyongyang, but we did go to the DMZ demilitarized zone 
using the American um, pronunciation, the DM, um, DMZ, uh, that's how the Americans would call it, we met a North Korean colonel there who told us that um, the Americans, the West, had invaded North Korea. Now, that's a big lie. It's not true. But everybody inside North Korea, it's about 23 million people, have to believe that lie or they're off to the gulag or they're in trouble. So this is the most controlled, rigidly controlled society on Earth. Incredibly poor. There was a famine in the late 90s when maybe three million people died of famine. And today the UN says one in four North Koreans are suffering from malnutrition. That means at least some of the children will be starving right now. We didn't see that, but what we saw was a very, very, very bizarre kind of picture which our minders wanted us to see. We went in as tourists. But what they showed us were things which were just weird. We saw a, um, a bottling plant. There were no bottles. They took us to a farm. There were no animals. They took us to a library. There were no books worth reading. And they took us to a hospital, and there were patients, but only in the morning. And so after a while, you kind of you scratch your head. Is this for real? Is this really happening? And, and so I do have to say, just listening to that lovely archive package you did just then, I do have to say that if you actually uh, can go to North Korea, um, you will understand that the sacrifice of our soldiers and the other people who fought for the UN against the North Korean communists was not in vain. It was something that was worth doing. The war may be forgotten by some, but if you go to North Korea today in 2013, you realize that those chaps were fighting for liberty. And did you get a, a sense at all of the difference that the, the newish uh, Supreme Leader Kim Jong-un is making? No real difference. It's the same old rubbish, it struck us. Um, there's no serious freedom, no freedom to think, no freedom to speak. Um, the gulag, as far as we can tell from the defectors, from the satellite uh, photographs, uh, continues. It's dire. Um, and they were threatening thermonuclear war. Kim Jong-un was threatening thermonuclear war. Now, w w that was happening when we were there in April. Christopher. Uh, sorry, in late March. As um, and over the last couple of months, it's died down, and there are talks there's an economic zone that's happening um, on the border, and there are talks about restarting that. But you go to Seoul, you go to South Korea, and the difference is amazing. There's free speech, you can go for a walk, and the place is, what, 40 times as rich as North Korea. I mean, it's incredibly poor, incredibly backward, and incredibly repressed. It's so dark. Christopher, one of the things that came across um, from John's report was that uh, when you have a, a leader in this kind of situation with such dire economic uh, circumstances, the threat of war is something that can unite people and can be used almost as an excuse to sweep those other problems under the carpet. Do you think the threat of war is a real threat? It's a threat, it's a threat in as much that you build capabilities. If you build a military capability of any form, that's one thing. What you do with that capability, your intentions, is the, is the difficulty of all intelligence services. But who would be threatened? One, the Japanese very much think that they would be threatened. If the North Koreans build an, an operational nuclear system, which they don't have at the moment, then Japan will have to start rethinking their whole uh, military strategy, maybe even a nuclear strategy. That will change everything. The Americans have got around about 30,000 troops in southern Korea in South Korea. That changes their attitude. Today, there's a visit to North Korea 
by Deputy uh, Chinese Foreign Minister Lao Di. This is the first visit this year. That is very important. Why is it very important? Because China is, is in some ways regards North Korea as a, as a client state, but also China doesn't want a nuclear state next door to it. So in some ways, even China feels threatened. Uh, John, if you, if you can answer this, just on a personal note, I'm interested to know as a result of your report whether or not you've had any response from the North Koreans and whether or not you've um, felt under any pressure since it's gone out. No, uh, it's not the Church of Scientology. Um, <laughs> they, I don't think they give a monkey's because they don't... Um, there is no internet there. There is no television other than North Korean propaganda. So there will be a small number, perhaps, in the Foreign Office, their Foreign Office and their Secret Police, who may have watched our film on the Internet, but hardly anybody else. But I feel um, it's left a scar on my mind, uh, and it's partly why I'm writing uh, my book about it. So will you go back? Will you try to go back? um, I'm going to go back, but I'm going to have to go back on the top of a tank Mm. or or when there's a revolution. I don't think I can go back... um, myself, um, while the current regime's in place, this regime cannot feed itself, it cannot line Mm. itself. Look at the satellite pictures from space. Mm. This is an incredibly rich part of the world these days, and North Korea looks as though it's dark, it's a black hole, because there is no electricity. So this place can't feed itself, it can't look after itself, it's threatening war, and I think in a way there's a danger that if we get too... um, I feel that what we're faced with is an enormous confidence trick. If they have a war, they will lose and the regime will die. No question. No question at all. So therefore, what it's masking is an enormous human rights uh, crisis. One day, the regime will fall and then I'll go back. John Sweeney, thank you very much for your time today. So, who should decide when Britain's troops go to war? According to an influential committee at the House of Lords, the current convention by which the Cabinet has the final say, backed where possible by a parliamentary vote, is right. The Constitution Committee did, however, consider the option of making that parliamentary vote a legal requirement. I've been speaking to Baroness Jay, who is the chair of the committee, and asked her if more parliamentary powers could actually undermine the armed forces. I think you've raised a very interesting point, because... One of the reasons why the Constitution Committee decided that we didn't want to go down a more formal role for Parliament to have, we didn't want there to be a change in the law, which interestingly William Hague said a little while ago he thought there should be, um, was because we felt exactly that, that the military and the government should have the flexibility to deal with situations which you can't necessarily foresee when you're having a parliamentary debate. You're critical about the decision-making over Syria, in Mm. particular that there's no clarity whether Parliament will get to debate or vote should there be uh, more intervention in Syria. But isn't that quite understandable because the situation is always changing on the ground, opinions may change, information may change? Well, I think what we're concerned about is the fact that we've had indications from the government, the Deputy Prime Minister, for example, Nick Clegg, gave evidence to us saying that the question of having a more formal procedure was still under review. William Hague, the Foreign Secretary, has said 
that Parliament's role should be enshrined in law. And yet there is a lack of clarity, or has been, about what role Parliament should play in relation to Syria, which, as you rightly say, is a fast-moving situation. And that's a very important reason why the Constitution Committee decided that flexibility was much more important than trying to set things down in legal statute before the event. So you think it's completely understandable that as things stand at the moment that saying whether there will or not be another vote or discussion about Syria is quite understandable. No, I think there should be clarity about what Parliament should do, uh, but we don't think there should be a formal process. The issues putting this into law, you've talked about, and the report is very clear Mm. about that. What about uh, the situation if it is debated more often in Parliament, about making military strategy more in the public domain, is there not a risk that this might put military lives at risk? I think that's right. And I think the other important issue, it's one which was made very clear to us by some of the very important military officials and military experts and ex-army officers and ex-naval officers who gave evidence to us, is that you don't want to have a negative effect on morale. So if you're sending out a message, which is that there's huge debate in Parliament, that people take very different views about what should be done in a certain situation, that may undermine confidence. People may feel, well, if so many people are arguing about it, what are we really doing here? So where do you stand? More or less debate on these issues? I think you can have an open discussion, but what I don't think you can have is a law saying Parliament must agree X, Y and Z before there can be military intervention, because you can't have a very clear view about what may happen, particularly in a fast-moving civil war or civil conflict in which you're not quite sure which players are on which side or how the thing will break out. And also, I think the other thing which we were very clear about was that the technical advances in military intervention are so complicated when you think of things like drones that you really can't say, well, this is a situation in which war has been declared, capital letters, and therefore Parliament must be involved because there may be very significant military intervention, but it isn't of a conventional kind and it's quite difficult to track. I mean, the other thing which was talked to us about by some of the excuse me, the academic experts, was the importance of cyber warfare, that how that's all increased very much even since the time of the Iraq war. To what extent do you think that remote warfare, drones and cyber mm. warfare, has changed the whole way that decisions should be made about going to war? Well, it's obviously changed the decisions about, you know, you can't say any longer on day one, we are going to war. And on day two, we are in a war because you know that these interventions are taking place, obviously, very quietly and without particular observation of any kind of transparency, because that's what's important strategically or tactically from the military point of view. So every time that one of these interventions happens, it's very difficult to say a line must be drawn because you may have a conflict between what you think is politically relevant and what you may think is militarily relevant. Baroness Jay, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. This is BFBS. Sit rep. Now, what's in a name? His Royal Highness Prince George of Cambridge, when he becomes king, probably sometime in the 22nd century, will also be the Armed Forces Commander-in-Chief. But does a military commander have to have a name with gravitas? And does George sound right? Prince George could, in fact, choose another name when he becomes the monarch. So, could a modern-day admiral be called Horatio or Cuthbert? Or would Michael, John or Jane be more fitting? Um, Christopher, or can I call you Chris? No. <laughs> um, you don't know me well enough. Listen, um, um, Cuthbert, Cuthbert Collingwood, 
was, I think, one of the finest admirals of the early 19th century. He was the guy that actually led the, the attack on the French and Spanish. And how was that name back fate, then? Uh, Cuthbert. It was quite, thought quite a good name. Now, I had a great uncle whose name, believe it or not, his name was Vivian. Um, mm. And he was Vivian Blenkinsop Lee. Now, you wouldn't think he was going to carve out a great career in the, in the Royal Horse Guards and that, will you? You were absolutely quite right, he didn't. But it was a very respectable career. But when you look around at some of the names that really do it, um, well, I don't know, if you, if you, if you thought of um, Napoleon... Louis Napoleon? Well, you know, the young prince has got Louis in there somewhere, hasn't he? Mm. But they're real toughies. Um, three really good soldiers that, um, that we all know. Uh, Jackson, Cowan and De La Billier. Mm. People who have done the business at the very, very much at the sharp end. Peter Le Billier, Mike Jackson and Sam Cohen. You know, good names. Sam, Mike and Peter. Um, Shan Hackett. What about <laughs> Dwight? Dwight Eisenhower. Nice. Great commander. Mm. But I saw somebody, um, there's a guy in the army today, and he was, on, he was tweeting that, quite frankly, do you know what he wanted the prince to be called? Go on. Bernard. <laughs> Bernard. <laughs> now, I love, I'm, I'm sure there are Bernards around who are really good people, but do you know why Bernard? Go on. After, after Monty, after uh, Monty, uh, Montgomery. Oh, yes, now, that's yes. a very narrow thing. But you see, I never, it didn't really matter. I sailed with a guy whose name was Bert. And I said to him, excuse me, sir, is it, is it Bertram, Albert, whatever he said, it's Bert. <laughs> and I said, why is it Bert? He said, because my mother could not afford the extra line in the Times announcement under births. You have ten seconds to tell us what to look out for in the coming week, Christopher. Look out for, uh, for, for what's going on in Bulgaria. Bulgaria may not exactly be the new Egypt, but you should be looking at it. There have been riots there for 40 days now. I think Orshavsky... The Prime Minister could fall. We will have an interest in that. Well, that's it for this week. My thanks to all of our guests. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter and you can tweet us at BFBS SITREP. Remember, you can listen again to this week's programme on our website, bfbs.com slash SITREP. Bye-bye for now. Eddie Mayer.